Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Moving Into the Future. Today, I am joined by Bob Knackle from JLL. Bob, how are you today? I'm great, Jack, and it's great to be with you. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. For our listeners who are, who are not familiar, Bob is one of, if not the most successful real estate professionals in New York City history. He's had over $20 billion in sales and has been a part of over 2,000 uh, real estate investment deals. Is that correct? Uh, 2,272 as of last week. Wow. And that's changed since about a month ago because on uh, the Weiss advice, I believe he mentioned 2,259. That's right. So yeah, good, uh, good stretch here. Yeah, that's incredible. So I'm really excited to have a conversation with you. Uh, this all started because we were at the Red Connect uh, networking event back in June, I believe it was, or early July. And you had said something that really piqued my interest because what's currently going on in Manhattan is rents are rising at an astronomical pace for a, a lot of uh, residents. And um, people often place that blame on the landlords. But when in fact, a lot of it has to do with uh, state and local governments and, and some of the uh, roadblocks that they put in place for developers and investors. And I know you've done some work to try to, you know, advise uh, local governments and state governments. And, uh, you know, can you talk a little bit more about that as far as some of the advice you've given them and, and how you think, you know, we can improve that moving forward so rents can become more affordable for uh, the residents of New York and, you know, we see more whether it's affordable housing or, or just housing opportunities that are in large luxury buildings. Yeah, Jack, I think it, it's one of the big ironies of uh, New York real estate is that, um, you know, public policy and the way the markets function are very, very highly correlated. Uh, in fact, sometimes in some sectors like the multifamily sector, uh, the correlation with public policy is greater than the, the dynamics within the market itself. Um, and what I mean by that is that, um, you know, there, there are policies and restrictions, rent regulation. There are things that guide what property owners can do. So you mentioned, um, you know, and, and owners are asking for big rent increases. Uh, the fact is they couldn't ask for those if the market wouldn't bear those increases. So, um, you know, if you if you ask for an outrageous amount and nobody's willing to pay it, you're not going to ask for that outrageous amount. But the fact is that the irony is every single politician in New York says that they want rents to be lower, they want the city to be more affordable for people, but yet every single piece of legislation that has either been implemented or ignored since 2018 has done nothing but exerted upward pressure on rents. Um, and when I meet with politicians, I tell them, look, if you want to solve New York's housing issues, it's very, very simple. Just look at the supply side of the equation. Um, and what, what politicians opt to do is to try to confiscate private property, restrict private property, restrict what property owners can do with their property, rather than increase supply, which is a much easier thing to do. And and the tangential benefits of increasing that supply is that you're creating a tremendous number of jobs, you're increasing tax revenue, um, you're lowering rents. But there's nothing bad about increasing supply, and the easy way to do that is to incentivize construction. We have no 
um, 421A tax abatement or Affordable New York, which was a, a follow-up iteration of 421A, that abatement's gone. So there is a huge air bubble in the supply pipeline of new rental housing. No new rental housing being built. In fact, sellers who come to us that have sites that could be developed for rental housing, we tell them, don't even think about selling because your property value is so low because there's no abatement in place. Don't even, don't sell today. See, that's really interesting. And again, you know, with the state of the market and what it is in commercial real estate right now, where this is something else interesting that you told me, you know, with seeing so much available commercial real estate and uh, we have a lot of, you know, so much space. It's, it's, it's a lot more than many cities have total in commercial real estate right now. And uh, you think what could be happening is these uh, buildings get sold and then, you know, it could be knocked down, but the incentive to build residential properties there simply doesn't exist is what you're saying. Well, the, the issue you're talking about is conversion of office space to residential. And that, that's been a big topic. Um, you know, the fact is that um, we could very easily have a hundred million square feet of vacant office space in the city. Uh, we went into the pandemic with 25 million feet vacant. Uh, there's currently 27 and a half million feet under construction. And if aggregate demand for office goes down by just 10%, um, that could be another 40 or 50 million feet. There's 100 million feet. A lot of the office stock in New York City is functionally obsolete because of the age. Um, and the office sector, to understand it fully, you have to look at new construction class A versus everything else. New construction class A is doing well. Um, and the, the interesting thing is if you're in a new office building, you feel like you're in a completely different environment than if you're in an older building. Without a doubt. Um, so I think that sector is doing well. The older stuff, there's only so much you can do to an older building. Right. You can't change ceiling heights. You can't take columns out. Um, and so it's difficult for those buildings to be competitive with new construction. So what we've, we've told elected officials is that you know, we think that they should um, incentivize the conversion of this older obsolete office stock to residential. Um, the values are, are falling. They haven't fallen quite to the point where it's, it's feasible to do the conversion. Um, and there are some being done. Um, but, you know, in the, in the 2000s, uh, in post 9-11, and the 421G tax abatement program was in existence before 9-11, but really kicked in after 9-11. Um, at that time, we had about 1,800 dwelling units in the financial district. Today, there's almost 30,000, all created by this 421G tax abatement program. So I've told the governor, I've told other people, I think that there should be a citywide 421G to incentivize the conversion of this obsolete office space into residential. Further, I think values are falling to the point where if you take the cost of the of the building and then look at a $75 or $100 a foot demolition cost, you're actually, your aggregate cost is below land value. So I think there's a chance that a lot of these older obsolete buildings will be demolished to make way for new construction. Uh, but we need to incentivize the conversion of these buildings to housing. We need housing desperately. It would be great for the housing market. It also would be good for the office market because we'd eliminate a lot of that overhang of vacant office space. So it, it, there's nothing but good things that uh, that come out of that. And that's another thing that could be done to increase supply. Um, another issue, which I think is really, really important, 
um, that not a lot of folks are talking about is the the MCI and the IAI programs. And for those, I know you have a lot of listeners from around the country. Um, I'll explain what those programs are. But, um, you know, I'm a lifelong diehard Yankee fan. <laughs> and I remember watching the World Series in 1977 and, you know, Reggie's hitting all the home runs. And the Goodyear blimp is panning out over Yankee Stadium. There's six fires going on within three blocks. And it, that was happening because at the time, it made more sense for folks right. to burn their building right now. Get the insurance messed up. Right. Right. So um, the city smartly enacted a major capital improvement program, MCI, and the individual apartment improvement program, the IAI. Um, to incentivize the private sector to invest in their buildings rather than burn them down. So we had in, in 1977, the dilapidation rate in New York was 14%, meaning 14% of all housing units were deemed uninhabitable. Um, so the IAI and the MCI kick in. The private sector invests tens of billions of dollars into the housing stock. And in 2019, the dilapidation rate in New York was 0.04%. Which is incredible. Um, and so what happened, the, the our rent laws changed very tangibly in June of 2019 um, and marginalized both of those programs uh, to the point where we have tens of thousands of apartments that were previously rent-stabilized that are sitting vacant. Um, and... Uh, that is something that could easily add to the supply of units. Also, I, I, I told the elected officials, you restore the IAI and the MCI, you'd have 40,000, 50,000, 80,000 units that would all be under construction within two weeks. Uh, and then they, that would create jobs and create economic activity. It would increase tax revenue and you'd have more apartments for folks. I mean, so many of these ideas are so simple, but yet our politicians can't get their arms around these issues and are choosing to to take uh, to confiscate private property rather than increase supply. So if they would just focus on the supply side and, and look no further, if, if those those policymakers believe that an econ 101 textbook is capitalist propaganda. Look no further than the pandemic. Right. We had a lot of people move out of the city. Right. A vacancy went way up. Vacancy going up is effectively adding to supply. And rents in Manhattan dropped by 30%. Do you want rents to be more affordable? Simply create more supply to the residents drop. And so when you were saying, too, so because they eliminated the MCI and you said ICI? IAI. IAI. Um, because they eliminated that, there are 40,000 vacant units in New York City that could easily be rented to people? Yeah, well, they, they, they couldn't easily be rented unless they're renovated. Oh, see, the, the issue is, if, let, let's say let's say somebody was living in an apartment, and, and, and you know, a two-bedroom, and they're paying $750 a month. Right. Well, they've been there for 40 bucks. Right, right. That building isn't, uh, that unit is probably in terrible shape. It needs a new kitchen, new bath, new walls, new floors. New windows, new everything. The in the old guidelines, you were able to fully renovate that unit and pass along one fortieth of the increase of what you spent in monthly rent. Right. Um, today you can't do that. So if, if that unit, let's say on a, a free market basis after it's renovated, is worth four thousand a month, and the last tenant was paying seven hundred a month, 
if you go in and renovate the unit today, you're capped at investing only $15,000 into the apartment over a 10-year period. So no owner is going to take that that unit that's worth 4000 a month, right. renovate it, and then rent it only for $758 a month, which is what you'd be able to do. You'd effectively be creating a life estate for that head of yeah. never move out. Exactly. So why would you do that? So the the estimates are the the low estimates I've seen are twenty to thirty thousand units. The high estimates are seventy to eighty thousand units. Probably I don't know forty, fifty, sixty thousand units that are sitting empty. What the heck are you thinking about, man? That is something else. And again, you you said it's simple economics. You know, by just increasing the supply, so many more people. And and one of the things too you mentioned about the office sector and how it would help uh, the commercial sector and office sector as well. One of the many reasons why people don't come back to the office too is because they have to commute. And when you have an easier commute living in the city, you're gonna see a more robust city with with people and, and walking and not to say tourism and that aspect hasn't come back because it certainly has. But when you're talking about the affordability of the city, which pushes people out, like we said, to the outer boroughs or into New Jersey or Long Island or upstate, uh, it becomes much more of a challenge, if you will, for them to come into the city to get to the office four to five days a week, and they'll only come in when needed. And again, that hurts the city. That hopes it hurts the local economy. And uh, it starts from the top there. So let this be a, a message to the you know the people of New York City and beyond. You know, many people always blame these landlords for these issues, and I'm sure you speak to a lot of landlords too. You know, what do you talk about with them, uh, you know, as far as their property goes? And and what are some of the things they say to you and, and the positions that they're in? Yeah, well, I think most the landlords who own apartment buildings in New York, um, probably the adjective that best describes them is they're very frustrated. Yeah. Um, they, they've owned their buildings for a long time. Um, they, they love their tenants. They love the neighborhood. They want to keep the buildings up. Um, you know, some, some owners that plant flowers every year and they, they really want to create a nice environment, uh, for their tenants. And they're saying, you know, Bob, I can't do that stuff anymore because I can't afford to. Right. Um, and the, the restrictions and the, the obligations that owners have to get more and more burdensome every year, but the, the increases in rents that they're able to get don't keep up with inflation. Right. Don't keep up with the increase in taxes. Um, you know, or a real estate tax burden on apartment buildings is overwhelming. When when I started in the business in 1984, real estate taxes as a percentage of gross revenue in the buildings was about 5 or 6%. Today, it's 30%. Some buildings, even 33, 34, we've seen 35% in some buildings. Where is that burden going to go? Right. They're going to get to 50%? Right. Um, so, you know, it's very, very cumbersome. Owners are frustrated. They're, they're unable to keep their buildings up. And interestingly, probably 85 to 90% of the, the what we'll call the, the old timers, uh, the families and the individuals who for decades would only buy New York City apartment buildings. They wouldn't even go to New Jersey. Um, they only bought in New York City. 85 to 90% of those people are buying around the country now. Yeah. Um, they're not looking at anything in New York. They're buying in Florida and Texas and Tennessee and um, the states where state income taxes are less than 3%. Um, and we have a bunch of new people who are coming in uh, who are buying these buildings because through my entire career, cap rates on New York City apartment buildings were always 150 
to 200 basis points below where they were around the country. Today, gap rates in New York are higher than they are outside New York, which is really, um, it's it's troubling to see. Uh, it's, for, it's creating a dynamic where people are selling in their home states, coming into New York. They don't have a vested interest in the neighborhood. Right. Uh, they, they don't really know the neighborhoods. Um, and not saying that that's a bad thing, but you know, somebody who, who knows the neighborhood, cares about the neighborhood, wants to see the neighborhood continue to thrive is better than somebody who's just looking to make a, an investment than a return. Exactly. And, you know, come for a couple weekends a year sort of thing. And, you know, whether they're running it out and Airbnb or, or, you know, whatever it may be, those people really don't become a part of the community, which is again, something you want to try to avoid, uh, which is unfortunate. Um, and you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about you too, and you, and you mentioned it now, people come to you often for different real estate advice and, and different, uh, advisement, uh, information, you know, uh, ideas you can give them or, or, you know, specific, uh, market, uh, insight that you can provide. What do you think? I actually saw this as one of your, uh, knuckle nuggets, which I really enjoy on Twitter and, uh, LinkedIn. Um, and one of the things you, you mentioned is, you know, when somebody asks you about the market, come prepared to give them, you know, specific numbers or a, uh, uh, a dense proposition and value that you can provide to them. So you're not just saying, okay, the market is bad or, you know, yeah, it's really something right now, you know, the lesson is to, to talk in statistics rather right. than adjectives. And that's something you're very good at. That is your. You've been, you've, you've, I've, I've listened to a number of your podcasts. You've been doing a bit of a tour, and I appreciate you coming on mine. But one of the things you said is real estate is not a very uh, difficult thing to grasp. It's 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 numbers and it's uh, analyzing. You know the values of properties. We have the map room where you know you have the entire uh, island of Manhattan laid out there, and, and understanding. And I think that's something you've done very well. Is simplified real estate so that by hand you simplify for your clients is that something you do well well you know it's interesting jack i think um real estate it, it it's summed up by my my buddy kyle matthews very well and he says real estate is a simple business it's just really arg <laughs> and, and it makes total sense i get it. I, I mean it's not a we're not curing cancer here right um it, it is a a very straightforward blocking and tackling kind of business but it, it's hard to have the discipline to do these these things day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And, and that seems to be the one of the characteristics that separates the folks who do really, really well in our business from the folks who, who don't do uh, that well. And uh, it's, it's passion, discipline, a number of things. Mm -hmm. But you know, I think understanding the real estate is really, really important, understanding What's the total size of the market? What's the turnover rate? What are the prices? What are the cap rates? What are, you know, to be able to articulate what's happening with numbers as opposed to adjectives is a huge differentiator within our business. Absolutely, because as you mentioned, I think uh, again, this was in the the knuckle uh, nuggets. It was like uh, the market is down like forty five percent this year or something to that effect. And you know, how does that compare to year over year? You know, what was that like pre-pandemic? What were numbers like? And understanding that and be able to give that context to clients is so important. And that's similar in what I do as well. Um, what we're doing a lot of right now, you mentioned people moving out of the state or looking for investments out of the state. I move a lot of furniture out of New York City to different markets 
uh, around the country into Canada and Mexico. And um, one of the things clients ask me is, you know, what is this going to cost? And, you know, they think of it just from the shipping aspect of things, but it's also, uh, you know, the disassembling of all the furniture, the reassembling, and to give them that context and understanding, you know, we're not just looking at one component here. We're looking at multiples and then say if they wanted to buy new too, well, they're going to look at the price tag, you know, just for that new furniture. But then they have to also think of the delivery cost, the installation cost on all of that, the time frames and all those. And see, Jack, what you're, what you're talking about, though, is you, so you're framing everything on a relative basis. Right. And that is so important. And that's why the numbers and statistics matter so much. If I tell you that the market is on pace this year in New York City for $14 billion in sales, that number doesn't really tell you anything. Right. Right. But if you know that, you know, last year the volume was $32 billion, it puts it in perspective. If I tell you that the at the peak of the market there was $80.1 billion in 2015, then you start to get a sense of what that, that number means. So numbers are important on a relative basis. Right. And so when we look at the numbers, we're trying to look up is activity going up or is it going down uh is the dollar volume up or down are the number of properties sold up or down are values up or down and then you want to get two things direction and magnitude and the only way you get direction and magnitude is by comparing one number with a set of other numbers and that's the beauty of statistics is that the the absolute numbers themselves don't really tell you anything Right. If you have, I, I know nothing about the real estate market in Kansas City. If you told me there were two billion in sales this year, I have no idea how to interpret that. Right. But if I know that last year there were five hundred million in sales and you're on pace of two billion this year, I say, like, Wow, that market's booming. If you tell me last year was ten billion, I'm like, Oh my God, the market's really suffering. So it's all relative perspective and that's why numbers are so impactful. But you have to have a, a perspective and a, a set of numbers, and then you can analyze what any one particular number means. Exactly. And and one of the things too that you know very well, and, and I've understood this about you just from the little time I've known you, you've been studying these numbers since about 1980 in Manhattan. Is that correct? 1984. 1984. But, and then the numbers really don't go back farther than that. You really can't find much more because they didn't start keeping real estate records until about the 80s, right? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, we're, this is now the fourth major correction. Right. And I, that's how I was like, Digital. yeah. Yeah. And I, I um, you know, I was around the, the uh, SNL crisis in the early 90s and the recession of the early 2000s, the GFC. And in trying to, to look at where this correction fits in relative to those, I, I really wanted to do a comparison of what this current period is like relative to what the city was like in the 70s um, because we have uh, fiscal problems within the city that I think could rival what happened in the 70s. Uh, and I wanted to get real estate data and I went all over the place. The Real Estate Board of New York uh, talked to a bunch of old timers and that data just doesn't exist anywhere. It's really interesting. And you know, I'm sure some people have it but it's in the analog form, nothing's been digitized, and so there was no way to get a handle on what that uh, that information was. But yeah, I, I think my my uh, affinity for statistics started as a young kid. I played baseball my whole life uh, through college, 
and uh, collecting baseball cards is a big hobby. Right. And so always, always loved looking more at the back of the card than the front of the card. I love to look at the, the statistics that people had, and I think that that, um, that made me keep track of my statistics as a, a kid in Little League. Um, and then as soon as I started in real estate, I started, you know, really focusing on the numbers and, uh, you know, trying to get a sense of what was happening in the market based on how the numbers had fluctuated. Yeah, exactly. And you see, it's funny, those, uh, those small things that we do when we're young and, you know, those industry take, and now it's led you to, to be in one of the most, you know, successful real estate professionals ever. Speaking of the Yankees too, you mentioned it before. You're a Yankees fan, right? Oh, absolutely. Tough season, huh? Tough season. I have to say, I am a, a very, very New York sports-minded. Right. I'm a diehard, lifelong Yankee fan, but we'll always want to see the Mets do well. Same. Um, I am a lifelong, diehard New York Giants fan, but want to see the Jets do well. Um, I'm a lifelong, diehard Ranger fan. I've had season tickets since 1984. The Islanders. And I want to see the Islanders and the Devils lose every game. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I was going to say. the nature of hot dog versus other, other sport. Right, and I've always explained this to my friends. So, you know, again, I'm a diehard Knicks fan, and I can't stand the Nets. But with the Yankees and the Mets, the Yankees play in the American League, the Nets play in the National League. They only see each other a couple times a year. And then if they do see each other in the World Series, you obviously pull for the Yankees. The Jets and the Giants are the same thing. They, the Jets and the Yankees, right? So they only see each other a couple of times. The Islanders and the Nets, they're division rivals. So there is something there. We got to beat them in order to make the playoffs and succeed. So it's a, it's a different type of competition there. But I understand that. And I know you're a big hockey fan, too. You met a great ranger like last week I saw, right? Who was that? Oh, Eddie Jockerman. Yeah, yeah. Retired yeah, number, number one. one. Uh, you know, a great uh, Ranger, great, but there have been a number over the years. And, uh, you know, Mark Messier is uh, one of my heroes. Uh, look up to him very much and met Mark several times. But, uh, yeah, hockey is a big a big thing in my family. I have a 14-year-old daughter. She plays ice hockey. Nice. Uh, we travel to go to hockey. We actually travel quite a bit. Um, and uh, we'll go to a city and see a hockey game on Saturday night and then go to a football game on Sunday. And uh, it's been a great bonding thing for our family. Yeah, that's very cool. And one of the things you were involved in, uh, which we also have in, uh, a connection to, is Hockey in Harlem, which is a not-for-profit that provides, uh, you know, hockey opportunities to uh, young men and women in Harlem uh, to learn hockey and play. And and uh, you were the president of that organization for yeah, a while. And I actually got involved in ice hockey in Harlem in the uh, the late '80s, and. Um, was asked to join the board. It it actually is a um, an after school program right. for kids to help them with their educational uh, advancement, and then they get to play hockey. We use hockey as kind of the hook to get the kids into our after school classes to to become better educated. But they also get to learn to play hockey, which is great because most of these kids wouldn't have the the opportunity to play hockey. Um, and then I actually served as the president of my ice hockey in Maryland for 15 years, which was a tremendously rewarding uh, thing for me. Yeah, my little brother. So I'm a big brother through big brother, big sister. And uh, he used to live in Harlem right near Central Park, where I, I think a lot of it took place. And uh, he was into it for, uh, he had to be like 10 or 11 at the time, but he loved it. He had a great time with it. And, uh, you know, it was a cool new skill. He loved sports. Um, so, you know, for him to get to learn how to skate and play hockey, uh, was a real joy for him. So yeah, that, that's really cool. Yeah, we were active at uh, Alaska Rink and uh, Riverbank, and uh, the kids absolutely loved it. Right, because 
that's the thing with a sport like hockey too. See, I grew up playing basketball. You mentioned baseball. You know, with basketball, all you need is a ball and a hoop. Um, you know, baseball, you can still get swings in. You know, with uh, with a with a bat and a ball. Uh, with hockey, a lot of equipment involved. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, different pieces that you need. So the fact that you guys provide that to that neighborhood and those kids, uh, you know, is is a great opportunity. Have any? Do you know of any kids that ever went on to you know play uh, more or anything like that? No, I think there were a couple of kids that didn't go on to play in college. Yeah, uh, which was great. And um, you know, the Rangers have been great supporters of the program. Uh, we had you mentioned all the equipment that's needed. We had so many great uh, companies and individuals that uh, provided donations of equipment for us. And um, you know, one of the one of the great things about um, nonprofit organizations in New York is that they're, they're so giving and provide such great services, uh, to folks that really need a, right. a, a hand. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was a great experience. It's a great, great charity. I still not, not as involved as I used to be, uh, but still a big fan and big supporter of ISAC in Orleans. Yeah. And that's great. And what you mentioned there too, as far as the communities, I think when you're involved in real estate, uh, getting involved in different communities and understanding those communities, uh, helps a lot with, with what you do and, um, you know, how, uh, your knowledge of those neighborhoods and who are the people who are, uh, a- accessing these different spaces. Um, and adds a lot more depth to that. So, you know, we always, we always thought it was important to give back you know, our, our core values at, at MK were passion, integrity, excellence, and responsibility. Yep. Uh, the responsibility component dealt with giving back to the communities in which we work. And I remember when we opened up our, our Harlem division, um, none of the major brokerage companies were active in Harlem. Um, not that we were a major brokerage company. We were a little popcorn stand, but we uh, we, we sold more buildings than anybody else. I was white part. That's right. <laughs> um, but uh, but we, we were very, very active in Harlem. We were we, um, uh, selling a lot of properties up there, felt it was important to get involved in the community. Um, we were involved in many charities up there. Shimon Shakuri, um, who now runs Ariel Properties, wow. uh, opened up that division for us and really led the charge there. But uh, all of our folks that were up in the area were actively involved, giving their time uh, to charities that were focused in Harlem. And it was just, it was a great uh, great experience for us. Yeah, that is great. And uh, you know, this is this has been a really uh, great time talking with you. You know, I've one of the things uh, when I was preparing to sit down with you, you know, I, I go over a lot of things in my head. When you talk about being a great advisor, you know, one of the things I really try to do is, is always come prepared. And, uh, you know, I, I did some research on some of the other podcasts you went on. And uh, when we talked the first time, you mentioned you're a big Seinfeld fan. Uh, and to bring the Seinfeld trivia, and I saw on the Weiss Advice uh, episode, you nailed those questions. And they weren't easy. Um, so as we finish up here, I got a few for you. I wrote out of both. We'll see how good you are. These are tough. And these are a few of my favorite episodes. All right. Um, so let me get them ready here. Uh, great. Show. As a, as a New Yorker, you, you have to love sight. Oh, you, you got, you know, and especially, uh, when you're, I've been here 10 years. So now you're from New Jersey or are you from the state? I, I grew up in Maywood, New Jersey, right? Burton County. Um, and then uh, went to school in Philly, and then uh, lived at home uh, in Maywood for about six nine months, and then moved into the city. So I've been living in New York for, for in Manhattan for thirty nine years. Right, and that was the same case for me. That's what I was getting at. Is uh, you know I grew up in upstate New York, and I was living at home for like six months, and I realized you know, I can't be 
spent in my 20s in the town I grew up in. So I ended up down here. And funny story about that, too. We were talking about the Jets before. I interned for the Jets. They're on Hard Knocks this year. The last time they were on Hard Knocks was at SUNY Cortland, uh, where I went to school. And uh, I interned from there. And a recruiter reached out to me. She asked if I'd be interested in working in the city. I said, of course I would be. Uh, but I told her, I was like, but I live upstate New York. She's like, oh, we're looking for people, you know, uh, who live in the tri-state area. I was like, no, 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 I'd be interested if I'd be a job. And uh, I've been down here 10 years. And when I first got down here, I got really into Seinfeld because it helped me, I felt like, assimilate to New York City and like learn about it and, uh, you know, the different things. And uh, a couple of these questions actually have to do with New York icons and uh, the, the city at whole. So we'll start with this one. In season three, episode one, titled The Note, who does Kramer see eating a donut? And what do what is the donut shop called? Okay, well, Kramer uh, said he saw Joe DiMaggio eating a donut at Dinky Donuts. And uh, one of the things that Kramer claimed was that Joe dunked his donuts. Right. And Jerry was shocked that Joe DiMaggio would dunk his donuts. Right. And this is why it's funnier at the end of the episode, because the other uh, subplot of that episode is George gets a massage from, uh, from a male and is very uncomfortable with that. And they're sitting at the table at the end of the episode, and they all see Joe DiMaggio eat a donut. And Joe goes, man, that's one handsome man. That's it. <laughs> and they look at him. Oh, that's I get a kick out of that one. Um, okay, here's another one. In season four, episode 14 titled The Movie, the crew agrees to go see a movie together, but they all arrive at different times. What movie are they going to see? And a bonus question, what is the other movie that George walks into because he can't find a lane? Oh, this is a tough one. I know. I had to tell you, it could, there's so many movies mentioned on Seinfeld. It could be uh, The Channel. No. Tulsa. Okay. Well, let me, uh, let me think. Um, yeah, George goes in, and does George walk into Rochelle Rochelle? He walks into Rochelle Rochelle Rochelle. Uh, he originally we were over to see him. Um, it wasn't Firestorm. That was another, um, Episode, oh, this is a good question, Jack. Let me think. Um, uh, it's not Plan 9 from Outer Space. That was another one that they mentioned. They go to the movies a lot. Um, they go to the movies a lot. They talk about the movies a lot. Um, I, uh, I'll, I'll give you another hint. Okay. So Kramer walks in, and he sits in Elaine's seat. Sits on Elaine's coat. Right, exactly. I thought that might refresh your memory quickly. Um, Jerry is late to the movie because he was doing a stand-up set with uh, I forget the guy's name but he comes late you got a guess you were close with the channel um, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue but I, I don't I don't I don't know it this is a fitting answer check me check me okay. yes alright oh wow I feel good about that there you go good great question for anybody and then uh, last one in season 6 episode 9 titled The Secretary. What is George's secretary's name? Remember? Oh, God. The redhead? The redhead, I remember. It gives her a raise. Mr. Castaneda, and, and she ends up making more than... Right. Uh, when he's, when he's wild, wild. wild. He's, right. Um, you know, I think he, I think he got me a little... Oh, man, it's Ada. 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 And then Jerry, too. He's, uh, he's at the dry cleaners, and that's another situation at the movies. 
where uh, the dry cleaner really likes his uh, his jacket. And then there's Helm Stu's coat. That's right. I, that was going to be the bonus question. And, and Jerry, Jerry actually knew that uh, the dry cleaner took the jacket to the movies because he found the ticket stub in the uh, in the the pocket of the jacket. Exactly. And then he couldn't get his mother's ticket stub back because he gave that ticket stub to Kramer to get whose number? Um, to get uh, Uma Thurman's That's right. And the reason that he couldn't call Uma was because. He had some moisturizer in his pocket, and uh, he then somehow Kenny Banya ended up with the uh, with the stub, but the moisturizer uh, obliterated the number that uh, Kramer had gotten for Uma Thurman. Right, that's exactly right. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming on. This was great. It was, this is great. Yeah, it was uh, informative. It was fun. I, I really appreciate the, appreciate the time. Uh, you know, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Absolutely, Jack. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening.